I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Happy 1,000th episode. Happy 1,000th episode to you as well. It is, it is not just our 1,000th episode. It is the entire the show's 1,000th episode. Uh, and we put out a call to listeners back in early February for topics for today's show because Holly and I were having trouble coming up with one that seemed really suitable. Uh, and our favorite of the suggestions that we got was about Sadako Sasaki's Thousand Paper Cranes, which inspired a grassroots peace movement in Japan in the 1950s. And this is part two of that story. Last time, we talked about the context for the United States' use of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. And we also talked about Sadako herself uh, and the origami that she started folding while hospitalized with leukemia. Today, we are focusing on the peace movement that grew out of her life. The day of Sadako Sasaki's funeral, a memorial was being held for another girl who had died of A-bomb disease one year before. Someone suggested that Sadako's mother, Fujiko, attend it. And Fujiko was really apprehensive about this. Her own daughter's funeral was just that day, and her grief felt too fresh to focus on someone else's child. But ultimately, she decided to go. 
Also in attendance at this memorial was Ichiro Kawamoto. And like Sadako Sasaki, he was a hibaksha, or an explosion-affected person. And to recap from the previous episode, that's the Japanese term for somebody who had survived the nuclear attack on Hiroshima or Nagasaki or had entered those cities soon enough after the, the bombing to be, effect, to be affected by it. Ichiro Kawamoto was in his 20s and had dedicated his life to helping other survivors, including quitting his job and instead working through a government program that provided temporary work for unemployed people. So at the memorial... Ichiro Kawamoto and Fujiko Sasaki heard children talking about how there should be some kind of memorial to their late friend and to all of the children who had died because of the bomb. Fujiko mentioned that she had heard some children at Sadako's funeral say the same thing earlier in the day. And this gave Ichiro Kawamoto an idea for working with multiple schools to raise money for some kind of monument, starting with the schools that these children had attended. So he started contacting those schools, and at first he didn't get a lot of interest from the administrators that he talked to. But one theme among the responses that he got was that if this was going to be a monument for the children, that the call for it needed to come from the children, too. On November 8th, 1955, a memorial was held at the Sasaki home for Sadako's former classmates. As we mentioned in part one, her sixth grade classmates had formed a unity club at the end of the year so that they could stay in touch after some of them went on to other classes and schools. A lot of the kids in the unity club were really stricken with remorse over Sadako's death. Although they had visited her in the hospital, they hadn't done so as often as they could have. And the Sasaki family was living in very reduced circumstances, mostly as a result of paying for Sadako's medical care. So her classmates wondered if they should have been doing something more for her. And in addition to Sadako's death, nearly all of them had lost at least one immediate family member, either in the bombing of Hiroshima or somewhere else in the war. Ichiro Kawamoto came to that memorial as well, and he talked to the Unity Club about the idea of building a memorial. And he had an idea about how to get started. A convention of middle school principals was meeting in Hiroshima a few days later. And since they were middle school students, they might make an impression by printing up leaflets and distributing them to the middle school principals at the meeting. The Unity Club really took it from there. They worked together to write the leaflet. They mimeographed it at the school. Their leaflet said that they were all classmates and friends of Sadako Sasaki and that she had died of A-bomb disease after suffering for nine months. They said they wished to console the spirits of all the children who had died the same way by building a memorial. And they asked the principals to carry their appeal back to their schools. The pamphlet was vague. The students had no clear idea yet of what this memorial would be, what it would look like, how much it might cost, or where it would go, although Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park was the general assumption for the location. But they wanted to do something, not only to honor their friend and the other children who had died of A-bomb disease, but also to spread a message of peace. The Unity Club made 2,000 leaflets, and they took them to Hiroshima City Auditorium on November 12, 1955. They handed them out to the middle school principals as they were leaving their meeting for the day. And the students' own principal had also spoken about Sadako during the meeting's general session. As vague as it was, that simple, heartfelt appeal in the leaflets was incredibly effective. 
Having read the leaflets and heard about Sadako from one of their own, the principals were deeply moved. The word spread once they got back to their schools, sometimes with the pamphlet being read in full during assemblies and announcements. The students' honest, earnest request in memory of their friend really resonated with other schoolchildren. Although some of the students in the Unity Club had gone on to other middle schools, they signed the leaflet as the seventh grade class from Noboricho Junior High. And within a month of their distributing these leaflets, contributions started arriving at the school from all over Japan. Some of the first donations came in from small schools out in the country, where students had certainly lost family members in the war, but probably didn't have a direct connection with the A-bomb. By December, they had collected more than 14,000 yen. And for comparison, that was about half of a family's average monthly income at the time. Personal letters and well wishes rolled in too, many of them with a running theme that nuclear weapons should never be used again. The school's principal, Ginitsu Tanaka, had started out kind of ambivalent about what the students were doing. But he became a really enthusiastic supporter. And as more and more donations came in, the school realized it was not really prepared for what to do with them. They had to figure out a system for how to handle all this money. The task was ultimately entrusted to the student council. On December 25th, 1955, Sadako's former classmates once again met at the Sasaki home, now to celebrate the ongoing success of the movement. This movement grew even more after the new year, and we will talk about that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. January 18th. 1956 was the first official meeting of the Statue for the Children of the A-Bomb Preparation Committee. This committee named itself the Hiroshima Children and Students Association for the Creation of Peace, which is often just shortened to the Association for Peace. About a 100 students from 19 schools were involved from elementary through high school. What had been a vague call for memorial in a leaflet became an organization with goals and bylaws. And these bylaws made it clear that this was an organization for students. The first goal was to build the statue for the children of the A-bomb, also translated as the Atomic Bomb Children's Statue, which is how people had started referring to the memorial that they were hoping to create. The Association for Peace had other goals as well, all about promoting peace and opposing the use of nuclear weapons. This included conducting workshops, doing lectures, and having other events to promote and educate people about peace. The new organization's office was housed at the Hiroshima Children's Culture Center. The Unity Club was, sadly, not really part of the Association for Peace. They were seventh graders in their first year in middle school. They weren't involved in the student council, and student council officers were the ones who the school had entrusted with running the campaign. So the Unity Club didn't even know about the January 18th meeting until after it had happened. 
Some of the teachers who saw what was happening tried to keep the Unity Club involved, but at this point, the movement had, in some ways, swept past them as they continued with their own efforts to remember and honor Sadako. By March 25th, the Association for Peace had collected almost 275,000 yen toward the creation of a monument. After the opening of their office at the Children's Culture Center on April 1st, the fundraising really went into high gear. And by August, they had more than 4 million yen. In line with their organization's other goals, the Association for Peace also visited Hibaksha and sent representatives to peace conferences, including the World Conference Against A and H Bombs. There were certainly adults involved in this. Teachers and principals who supervised meetings and offered assistance with some of the financial dealings or offered classroom space or guidance. But this was really a movement driven by children, children who were outraged at the use of the atom bomb and the damage that it had done to their families and friends and who wanted a peaceful world in which it would never happen again. On August 5th, 1956, Kayo Okura, who had been Sadako's friend in the hospital for so long, walked into the Sasaki's barber shop. She apologized for missing the funeral and for not seeing Sadako again in the hospital before she died. And then she pulled a string of a thousand paper cranes out of her bag, which she had made for Sadako. The next day, the Sasaki family took them as an offering at the Memorial Cenotaph at Peace Memorial Park. About this time, some of the adults who were involved in this project were looking for good candidates to create the monument itself. And it was ultimately the children who chose Kazuo Kikuchi, an award-winning artist and a professor at two Japanese universities, from the finalists. On October 15th, they submitted their application for a statue in Peace Memorial Park. On October 25th, a memorial was held for the first anniversary of Sadako Sasaki's death. And now this was attended by her former classmates, as well as members of the Association for Peace who hadn't actually known her during her lifetime. Kazuo Kukuchi came to Hiroshima and met with the Association of Peace and with some of Sadako Sasaki's classmates. When he returned home, he took with him a picture of Sadako in the cherry blossom kimono that her mother and aunts had made for her before she went into the hospital. By the end of 1956, the Association for Peace had collected more than 5 million yen toward the creation of a children's monument. On January 8, 1957, the city granted permission for a children's memorial statue to be built in Peace Memorial Park, which is in the center of Hiroshima on land that was leveled by the explosion. Two months later, Kazuo Kikuchi returned to Hiroshima with a model of the statue that he proposed. This was a girl standing atop a hollow dome and holding a representation of an origami crane over her head. The sides of the dome also had two children dancing. With the final creation of the monument now underway, the Association for Peace turned its attention to the other goals in their bylaws. Their outreach and education goals didn't get nearly the kind of traction that the memorial statue did, but their enthusiasm and dedication for it was clear. By this point, the Association for Peace no longer had many direct connections to Sadako Sasaki. Her brother, Masahiro, was involved, and he was one of the organization's representatives at the Third World Conference against A and H-bombs. But otherwise, the students leading the organization were no longer people who had personally known her. It was less about the personal memory of a friend and more about all children. But Sadako and her cranes were still the face of the movement. 
In July of 1957, as the statue was being made, a film company approached the Association for Peace about participating in a film about what they were doing. They agreed, and the resulting film, A Thousand Cranes, came out the following June. As all of this was happening, other things were going on in Hiroshima that affected survivors of the bomb. Hiroshima Atomic Bomb Hospital opened in September of 1956 next to the Red Cross Hospital. And on April 1st of 1957, a law was enacted related to medical care for A-bomb survivors. The idea was that society, not the individual, was responsible for the care of a person who had been affected by the bomb. People who were affected by the bomb were able to obtain a Hibaksha health book, also called an A-bomb health book. And this was a book that was granted only to Hibaksha, which acted as an authorization of medical expenses at hospitals and clinics. And some people, though, did not apply for these, even though they were entitled to them, for a range of reasons. Yeah, for a lot of people, it especially for people who had been apparently healthy for the whole time since the bombing, it it had a note of finality to it. Like, I am formally accepting the fact that this is something that can happen to me. And so there were people who were definitely not comfortable with it. By the end of 1957, Sadako's story had spread all over Japan, particularly related to her resolute bravery in the hospital and the idea that she had died folding cranes. She had become the face that represented all children who had been lost to the atomic bomb. The Sasaki family, still really financially struggling, faced all of this gracefully. They were continually asked for interviews about Sadako. More and more students and school groups started to fold thousands of origami cranes. Final work on the Children's Peace statue began March 23, 1958. The monument was unveiled on May 5th of 1958 with Sadako Sasaki's little brother and sister, Eiji and Mitsui, doing the unveiling. On the front, the statue's epitaph reads, This is our cry. This is our prayer. To create peace in the world. And on the back, it reads, to comfort the souls of our brothers and sisters who died because of the A-bomb, and to appeal to the world for peace, the elementary, junior high, and senior high students of Hiroshima, with the help of friends all over the country, have joined hands and worked together to build this monument. May 5th, 1958, the Hiroshima Children. There's also a bell at the monument that was donated by Dr. Hideki Yukawa, who was the first Japanese Nobel laureate, which is inscribed with peace on earth and in the heavens and a thousand paper cranes. Coming up, we're going to talk about the ongoing impact of this story. But first, we're going to have a little pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. 
And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the time the Children's Memorial statue was unveiled, the Unity Club, which again was Sadako Sasaki's former sixth grade classmates, had renamed themselves the Kokeshi Club. And this was a reference to an essay that one of them had written about Sadako and about the need for peace. 
they didn't have a lot of official involvement in the statue's unveiling. In the days leading up to it, they had made three enormous paper cranes and carried them to various points in Hiroshima where they asked people to sign them as petitions to ban A and H-bombs. The, their hope was that these giant cranes would be displayed alongside the unveiled statue, but for reasons that are unclear today, they weren't. Later on, they did revive the Unity Club, and a lot of them stayed in touch for decades after all this had happened. After the debut of A Thousand Cranes... Orizuru Kai, or Paper Crane Clubs, started forming all around Japan, with members folding paper cranes for patients at the Hiroshima Atomic Bomb Hospital. Hiroshima's club also visited Hibaksha and kept the area around the monument clean, including removing old strings of cranes and replacing them with new ones. The Hiroshima Crane Club also launched a fundraising effort to preserve the A-bomb dome, which was the remains of the only building near the explosion's hypocenter, that was still standing after the bombing. That building had become part of Hiroshima Peace Park, but because of its poor condition, it was at risk of being torn down. Incredibly sadly, the Sasaki family didn't financially recover from the costs of Sadako's medical treatment. And the years after her death, they they eventually moved out of Hiroshima, and Sasaki's two younger siblings were adopted by relatives. The children's advocacy for a peace memorial had happened in tandem with a growing peace and anti-nuclear weapons movement in Japan in the 1950s. Until the end of U.S. military occupation in 1952, writing about the nuclear bombings was forbidden in Japan. But as those restrictions were loosened, people began to write about and share their experiences. This movement against nuclear weapons in Japan picked up speed in 1954 after sailors aboard the Diago Fukuryu Maru, or the Lucky Dragon No. 5, suffered radiation poisoning as a result of United States nuclear testing. This boat was near the Bikini Atoll on March 1st, 1954, when the United States detonated a thermonuclear device. The crew did not know that the United States had expanded the range of its testing, but according to its logs, it was close to, but still outside of the exclusion zone. All of the crew experienced acute radiation sickness, and a radio operator named Akichi Kubuyama died of it on September 23rd, 1954. A movement against nuclear weapons was growing outside of Japan as well. In 1946, John Hersey had published his work, Hiroshima, which profiled the lives of six Hiroshima survivors and was originally printed as an entire issue of The New Yorker. It then became available as a book. And for a lot of people outside of Japan, this was their first exposure to the realities of what had happened during the bombing. And it both humanized the victims and provided details about the horrifying nature of a nuclear attack. So the use of nuclear weapons has never been viewed as particularly acceptable within Japan. And public acceptance outside of Japan has dropped since the end of World War II. That Pew Research study that we mentioned in Part 1, in which 57% of Americans thought their use was justified against Japan, that was 57% recently, but that number is down from 85% in 1945. Nuclear weapon production peaked during the Cold War and has continued to drop since then. In 1970, the International Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, you'll see that abbreviated as NPT, came into effect. This is an international treaty meant to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, and since then it has been extended indefinitely. According to the Plowshares Fund, there are currently 14,900 in possession 
of nine nations. We're kind of glossing over a lot of the Cold War there, including some truly terrifying incidents like the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it's 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 not to suggest that uh, that suddenly the world followed a, a a graceful arc of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to non-acceptance of nuclear weapons. Like there was a lot of scary stuff and a colossal arms race in the middle of all that, but. This is, again, a brief overview. And globally, the world continues to be divided on the subject of nuclear weapons. On July 7th, 2017, the United Nations approved the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is an international nuclear weapons ban, with a vote of 122 to 1. However, there are a lot more than 123 UN member states. The nine nations generally recognized as having nuclear weapons did not participate in the talks around this treaty, nor did most of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. France, the United Kingdom, and the United States issued a joint statement after the vote, which began, France, the United Kingdom, and the United States have not taken part in the negotiation of the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. We do not intend to sign, ratify, or ever become party to it. Therefore, there will be no change in the legal obligations on our countries with respect to nuclear weapons. So to sum that up, basically all the nations that don't have nuclear weapons are like, these are terrible, please make them go away, while the nations that do and their allies didn't participate. Japan also did not sign that new treaty because of its close ties to the United States and its shared security cooperation with the United States. And at the same time, Hibakusha have continued to be a huge part of the anti-nuclear weapons movement, and they were extremely critical of Japan's decision not to sign that treaty. To return to Sadako Sasaki and her cranes, since all of this happened, the origami crane has become a symbol of peace, and school and community groups have continued to fold chains of a thousand of them to send to hospitals, museums, monuments, memorials, and places where a tragedy has occurred. Sadako's brother, Masahiro Sasaki, began traveling around Japan giving lectures about his sister in 2000. He and the rest of the family have also established the nonprofit organization Sadako Legacy in 2007. The Sasaki family gave away many of the 1,300 cranes she folded over the years to well-wishers and to people who just wanted to know her story. Some are in the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum as well. When the family had only a few left, they decided to give the remaining ones to places that they felt particularly needed healing. This includes the USS Arizona Memorial at Pearl Harbor and the city of Okinawa. And there's also one at the 9-11 Tribute Museum in New York City. Masahiro Sasaki presented this crane along with ones that he and his son had folded in 2010. And Clifton Truman Daniel, who's the grandson of U.S. President Harry S. Truman, was present at that ceremony as well. Truman was in office in 1945 and was the president who ordered the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 2012, the 9-11 Family Association donated its own crane, a representation of an origami crane folded out of steel recovered from Ground Zero, which is now in Koryama, Fukushima, in memory of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that caused a meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear plant. Sadako's nephew brought one of her cranes to Koryama on August 21, 2015 as well. 
There is also, in addition to the statue at Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park, there's a life-sized bronze statue of Sadako Sasaki in an origami crane at Peace Park in Seattle, Washington. And it is often draped with strings and strings of paper cranes. It has sadly been vandalized a couple of times since it was put there, but in response, the community has rallied together to repair it, including raising $13,000 to do so in 2004. Sadako Sasaki's story has continued to have an impact in the decades since it happened. Several children's books uh, present fictionalized versions of it, and there are a lot of articles in education journals about the effects these books have on children, from kids who have struggled with literacy really engaging with a book for the first time, to inspiring community fundraising and other projects for the sake of peace, to huge paper-folding events led by children, some of which have been donated to hospitals, museums, and peace centers around the world. So that is Sadako Sasaki and her thousand paper cranes. And uh, before we go, we wanted to uh, take a moment, since this is our thousandth episode, and thank all of the prior hosts of the show who helped to get it to where it is today. That includes Josh, Candice, Jane, Katie, Sarah, and Dublina. And of course, we also have to thank our fabulous producer, Noel, who has recorded and edited our show for the last few years, and Annie, who was our producer for a bit when we first came on. And really, our entire production team has pitched in at some point. So thanks to the staff at House of Works as well, who have all touched the podcast in some way or another, whether it's been making our website work or making sure we could just keep the lights on. And thanks to everyone who suggested ideas for today's show. If you are disappointed that you suggested something that didn't turn out to be today's topic, don't worry. We added lots and lots of ideas to our show ideas list during that call for suggestions, and that is now also a thousand lines long. On Thursday, March 1st, we are actually doing a Facebook Live to celebrate our 1,000th episode, so you can find information about that on our social media Yeah, and also we have to thank you, the listeners. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Because without you, we probably never would have gotten to this milestone. (laughs) We would not have had a thousand episodes without people listening to them. So thank you so much, all of our dear listeners. Do you have special listener mail for the thousandth episode? I do have listener mail. Um... <laughs> I I was like, what, do we do we need some kind of super uh, fantastic listener mail for a thousandth episode? We have particularly interesting listener mail. It is from Katie. So Katie says she's a longtime listener, but she's been away from the show listening to another show, which I completely understand. I get very far behind on my favorite podcasts, and then I have to marathon them to catch up. So Katie says that she just listened to the Night of Terror at the Aquaquan Workhouse and wanted to throw in her two cents about the actual building. Um, and she talks about being from the area and goes on to say that now that the Lorton Workhouse, which was a building that was part of this whole Aquaquan Workhouse complex, it now has a new life as Workhouse Arts Center. I visited, and even though it gives off a very prison-y vibe, it provides many workspaces for artists and provides art lessons of many different kinds. There's also a small museum dedicated to the prison, and moreover, the suffragettes who were housed there. There's a very creepy mannequin of a woman being force-fed raw eggs. Nevertheless, my visit there was the first I had learned about my local suffragettes in the Night of Terror, despite going to elementary, middle, and high school in the area. I like to think the suffragettes who suffered there would be glad the prison has a new life dedicated to art. Thanks for all your great work, Katie. Thank you, Katie, for that note. 
Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're also at Missed in History all over social media. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. You will find show notes about all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done together. You'll find the whole source list for today's episode, all of the research that we did. Uh, in particular, you can find all the information about one of the books that was a big part of this research, which is called Children of the Paper Crane, the story of Sadako Sasaki and her struggle with the A-bomb disease. Uh, you can also find a searchable archive of every episode we have ever done. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is missinhistory.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere else you find podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.